Our scripture passage this morning is John chapter 11, 1 through verse 46. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 days, 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is, is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to her, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the, on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live again even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. 
Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the, of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this wonderful story of the Lord Jesus raising Lazarus. And in it, we see the glory of the Lord Jesus. Father, we um, see also that Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. And we thank you for that, Father, because we know that in Jesus that we will be raised up to be with you forever and ever. Father, we pray now for Tom that you would speak through him, that you would help him as he speaks the word and strengthen him and that, that the body would, would be quick to, to obey and to follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. All right, let's get to it. I want to I see a show of hands here. How many of you have ever asked God earnestly something and then realized that his answer to you was no? Now, if you look at the hands, you realize you're not alone, right? Um, I know some professing believers who have given up on prayer altogether because so many of their prayers were either not answered as they saw it or were answered no. And so they conclude, what's the point? We're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to explore for a little while when God says no for now. Some of what I'm going to say this morning will echo what I said at our dear Betsy's memorial service a little over a month ago. I love Betsy very, very dearly, and I labored in prayer for her, for her healing, 
as diligently as I have ever asked God for anything. And God answered those prayers, not yet. God was not finished burning the point of uh, the message that I presented at her memorial into my own heart and into the heart of my beloved wife when that memorial happened. He put the essence of what I said in that message directly to the test in our lives just a couple of weeks ago. And then he highlighted it even further when I visited my brother Gary Lavelle in his hospital room a little earlier this week. God repeats himself a lot, if you haven't noticed. And when he does, he intends for us to pay very close attention. In the familiar passage from John's Gospel that our brother Paul just read for us, Jesus brought his beloved daughter Martha face to face with the single most important truth that she would ever know. But in order to prepare her heart to fully embrace that truth, he first said no to what was likely the most earnest and heartfelt prayer that she had ever prayed. John begins chapter 11 by telling us that a young man named Lazarus had become very sick. Mary and Martha, the two sisters of Lazarus, sent word to Jesus. He was in another city, and they said, they said to him, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. He whom you love. The very next verse tells us that Lazarus and Mary and Martha were loved by Jesus. The gospel writer John is making it, he's making very sure that we understand that Jesus dearly loved these three. And of course, that means that they were as loved as loved gets. And we, we need to know that in order to understand what happens next in the passage. When Jesus learned that Lazarus was very sick, he did something that nobody expected and that nobody wanted. He intentionally delayed starting his journey on foot to come to Bethany, to the home of these three whom he loves so dearly, Fully two days later, he finally started that journey. At one point along the way, he told his disciples that Lazarus had already died. By the time he and his disciples finally approached the outskirts of the city of Bethany, Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days. The household of Mary and Martha was filled with mourning and crying and pain. A very distraught Martha came out from the village to meet Jesus on the road when she learned that he was approaching the gates of the city. Martha's sister Mary was still in the house weeping at the, at the grave of her beloved brother. In verses 21 to 24, Martha therefore said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she said, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. See, Martha, being a devout Jew, believed what God had declared through his faithful prophet Daniel hundreds of years before in Daniel chapter 12. 
that there will come a day in the end times when all who are dead will be raised from the grave. Those who are righteous in God's eyes to everlasting life and the rest to disgrace and everlasting contempt. But that resurrection, which will bring all of the saints of God into the presence of God forever, was not what Martha wanted Jesus to accomplish that day. When she said to Jesus, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you, her hope, her hope was fixed not on the permanent end of the curse. Her hope was fixed on a temporary exemption from the curse for her beloved brother right then and there. The eyes of her heart were focused on here and now. Long before any of this happened, Jesus had already purposed to grant the temporary deliverance for which Martha now longed, for his own glory. But before he performed the amazing miracle just a little later that same day, there was an even more amazing miracle that he had resolved to accomplish in Martha's heart. Without that miracle, the whole point of the other lesser miracle would have been lost. Jesus said to Martha, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked Martha the most important question that she would ever be asked. He said, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Martha confessed that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah whose coming had been foretold by the Old Testament prophets. He is the very Son of God. She embraced his declaration that whoever believes in him has eternal life and will never die. That was the right answer. I know it was because in the end of, toward the end of John's gospel, in John 20, verses 30 and 31, John tells us that the whole reason that he included the events that he chose to include in his gospel account was, quote, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's what Martha confessed. Before Jesus granted what Martha had so badly wanted in that moment, he made sure that her real hope, her real hope, was not in a mere extension of Lazarus's earthly life, but in a person, in a person, the person who will undo the curse of death forever for all who trust in him. God had raised the dead through other prophets like Elijah and Elisha. Jesus' question for Martha was not whether or not she believed that God could raise her brother through Jesus. His question was whether or not she believed that he is the resurrection and the life. In John 5, verse 21, Jesus had said, 
Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? He wasn't claiming that he's an instrument through whom God might choose to give resurrection life. He's claiming that he is resurrection life. He is the very source of life, just as his Father is. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man. Martha believed that claim. While Jesus was still outside the city, Martha sent word to her sister Mary to tell her that Jesus was asking for her to come to him. We pick up again at verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The exact same words that Martha had spoken. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews were saying, behold, how he loved him. And they were right. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? Now, if you recall, John 8, No one had ever healed a man born blind. People had been raised from the dead. No one had ever healed a man born blind, except Jesus. And so the crowd that was gathered at Martha and Mary's house said, well, if he did that, he could do, he could have done this. If he had just come, if he had just been here, if he hadn't delayed, he could have kept Lazarus from dying. And, and they were right, of course. They were absolutely right. Jesus had healed countless people. But friends, Jesus allowed Lazarus to die and to remain in the grave for four days so there would be zero doubt in anyone's mind that he was most assuredly dead. And then Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. But not before he let his own dearly beloved friends, Mary and Martha... And many others who had loved Lazarus experienced a profound grief for a time. Why would he do that? Why, if Jesus loved these, these people, as John asserts that he did, why would he do that? To understand God's answer to that question, we have to understand why Jesus did miracles at all when he was here the first time. The countless miracles of temporary deliverance from illnesses and injuries and attacks by demonic spirit, uh, spirits were not done to put an end to any of those experiences that are part of life here under the curse. When Jesus raised Lazarus that day, the physical body of Lazarus was still under the curse. Lazarus eventually grew old and died, and his body is still in that grave today. For now. See, whatever temporary exemptions from the curse you and I might experience by God's merciful hand, those temporary deliverances will never have the purpose of ending anyone's participation 
and the curse. God's purpose for those deliverance is to point us to the person who will end the curse so that we will find our our true hope not in fleeting improvements to this mortal life, but in everlasting relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ alone, who died in our place to put our sin and the curse of our sin that we fully deserved away forever. Before Jesus raised Lazarus that day, he very explicitly set before Martha the point of his intentional delay in coming and of the temporary resurrection that he was about to accomplish for Lazarus. That point was to declare in the most vivid way possible that he, Jesus, is the only way out of the curse for any of us. He is the resurrection and the life. Our hope is all about a person. And make no mistake, God cares very much about our experiences here under the curse. Jesus was right there in the trenches of life with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and their friends even after this. As the only man who knows perfectly the effect of the curse of dying and death on the hearts, the spirits of humans, Jesus wept when he saw the grief that filled that house. He cares about our suffering. He inhabits that suffering with us. Nobody knows the magnitude of the curse of death as profoundly as Jesus does. But when he grants relief from that suffering to us who remain here under the curse, he does so, he does so to draw our attention to himself as the source of resurrection life that lasts forever. The short but very powerful song that we sang at the beginning of this hour is from verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 73. Those verses say, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The word portion means inheritance. Those wonderful verses raise a critically important qualification to everything that we've considered up to this point. A qualification that God made crystal clear to me when I was in the hospital two and a half weeks ago. See, the psalmist declares that of all that is found in heaven or on earth, God is his soul's one true desire. But he does not say, my flesh and my heart will not fail. His trust is not in the quantity or the quality of his own strength or his own faith. His trust is not in his own resolve to keep his eyes firmly fixed on God no matter what happens. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's counting on God, not on himself. That's important. Beloved, God does not promise 
that you and I will never, never struggle with doubt or fear. He certainly tells us that such doubts and fears are unfounded, but our trust is not in our own fortitude or resolve. He himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust, and yet even knowing that, he has separated our sins from, from us as far as the east is from the west. Our salvation is not about anything that is found in us. It is about what is found in Christ. Men as mightily used as Moses, David, Elijah, and Jeremiah had episodes of great struggle to trust God. But they carried on with what God assigned to them, and they were powerfully used by God because the one they kept listening to was God. The God whose word is always true. I'm going to give you a bit of full disclosure here. It might be more than some of you want to know. A few weeks ago when my day surgery to install a pacemaker turned into a five-day hospitalization with a badly collapsed lung, I reached a point at which I felt more desperate and despairing than I had ever felt in the 50 years since God brought me to faith in Jesus Christ. Starting very soon after the pacemaker surgery, when I began fighting to catch my breath, I barely slept for more than 60 hours. I wasn't able to eat more than a few bites during that same period of time. And I can tell you that those two things, not sleeping and not eating, take a terrible toll on a human being in a very short period of time. For a good part of the time that I was then in the hospital, I was struggling even to think clearly, more than I had ever experienced. For the first couple of days, I was at the highest and most frequent doses of pain medication that they could safely give to me, yet I was still in very considerable pain through many episodes. Even in the times when the pain was less intense, if I tried to lay down, the pain became far, far worse, so I could only sit up for days. Because of that, my back, which isn't great even on my best day, began hurting every bit as bad as my chest and my side. I was tethered to the wall behind the bed with an eight-foot vacuum tube. The bathroom was about 12 feet away from that same wall, so you can do the math and figure out the ramifications. With medical staff coming in and out of the room, sometimes without knocking, I had no privacy at all. After a couple of days in that mode, Debbie and I learned that the opening in my lung that should have sealed itself within the first hour after I arrived in ER had instead gotten five times larger overnight. The day after that, we were told that after that much time, it was growing more and more likely that the only resolution for the very stubborn air leak in my lung would be yet another surgery that would ensure, at the very least, several more days in the hospital and considerably more and more relentless pain than I was presently experiencing. 
Friends, there came a point at which all I could think of was that I wanted that experience to stop. In that moment, and without talking to my valiant wife, I selfishly asked God to take me home. I felt absolutely no fear of physical death. The statistical probability that the surgery now being proposed to fix the resistant hole in my lung would fail was twice as high as the likelihood that the hole would have happened in the first place because of a pacemaker surgery. So things were moving in the wrong direction along the probability curve. It seemed clear to me that further complications leading to death could still be the outcome even if the second surgery happened. And the thought of going home to the Lord was far more attractive to me than continuing on that worst-case path. But the problem, brothers and sisters, was that in that moment, going home to the Lord was more attractive to me mostly for the wrong reason. In that moment, the courage to carry on with joy in the face of whatever I encounter in this life, the courage that God both commands and enables for all of his children in every circumstance was sorely lacking in me. Those who know me well know that my standard mode of operation is that I like to fix things. If I can't fix them yet, I do more research until I at least have a course of action that might fix them. Problem is, I try to apply that same MO to people, and that doesn't work. It certainly didn't work when it was directed to myself. I was at the end of myself, and I was at the end of my fixes. My flesh and my heart had failed. Now, I realize, of course, that there are people sitting in this room who have suffered more, much more than I did and who have suffered much longer. But being the semi-claustrophobic pain wimp that I am, I reached the point of wanting to throw in the towel sooner and more readily than I would have hoped. I said it would be full disclosure. Now, please understand, at no point was I considering taking my own life. I just wanted God to short out my new pacemaker or something creative like that so that he could put an end to that wretched situation and I could go home. But friends, in that same moment, God very graciously made it clear to me that until I was willing for that experience not to end, he was not finished with his purpose for that experience. And I'm glad that he wasn't. I'm pleased to tell you that purely by God's grace, my overwhelming desire for God to give me an easy out was very short-lived. Before God changed my situation, he changed my heart. <laughs> he drew my attention very decisively away from my circumstance and back to himself where it belonged, and he did that in a very personal way. 
I stopped looking at my situation to tell me whether it was well with my soul, and I looked again at him, at his proven character, proven beyond a doubt at the cross of Jesus Christ, at his precious and magnificent promises, at the living hope that I have in Christ alone. And I knew that nothing about my situation could possibly touch my well-being. Whatever he wanted to do with me became my controlling concern. If it was his will for my physical situation to get worse and to stay worse, I was ready and willing for that to happen. I would never presume to know all of the things that God is working to accomplish through the events in my life or in yours. We see so little of what God sees. But at least one of his clear objectives for that painful episode became very evident to both Debbie and me. Until we agreed with him that our well-being would not be found in a faster or more pleasant physical outcome, there was still work to be done in our hearts. Good work, necessary work, the kind of work that makes God's children joyful and resilient, able to press on through whatever we encounter in this life. Far more valuable work than fixing my lung on my timeline. God withheld and said no for a time in order to refine. And he made both of us desire that refining more than any temporary physical healing. One of the most marvelous gifts in that whole experience was that God had my beloved wife on the same lesson plan and the same timeline. In the rare event that you have a wife as unfailingly loving as mine, that your spouse, he or she, experiences your hurts every bit as profoundly as you do. It's one of the most amazing things about God making two into one. It's a very organic truth. It's an absolutely true thing. God makes two into one. Every hurt is fully experienced by both, as is every joy. Thankfully, Debbie, just as personally, experienced the same marvelous help that God gave to my soul at the same time. We still prayed and we asked others to pray that God would spare us the second surgery. But we knew that if the hardship continued, God had a good and eternal purpose for it that we did not want to miss. Please hear me when I say this one more time, brothers and sisters. God brought Debbie and me to the place where we were truly and deeply thankful to him that he did not deliver us from the expectation of that second very painful surgery even a moment before he did. What he accomplished through that delay was a much greater gift to us than the delightful news that we got very soon after that point that we would not have to face that second surgery. And God has already amplified that greater gift to both of us in the form of greater peace and greater joy and other challenges that we've faced for a much longer time. 
Watching God work is an astonishing thing. Now, I'm under no illusion that God won't ever have to repeat this lesson in my life. I'm a really slow learner sometimes, and I tend to quickly forget what I've already learned. That's okay because my teacher knows me far, far better than I know myself. And he's relentless. My flesh and my heart may fail at times, but God will never fail to keep his promises. And he has promised that he is at work in all of his children at all times, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The work part is easier than the will part as far as I can figure out. He is at work in us to will for his good pleasure. Isn't that great? (laughs) That's what he was doing. See, that's not a threat. That's a promise. It's a marvelous, precious, and magnificent promise. The last very important clarification that I want to raise about all this is that you and I don't deserve any exemptions from the curse, not in this mortal life and not in eternity. We deserve the full measure of God's wrath as creatures who have rebelled against our holy and righteous creator along with all of humankind except Christ. That's one of the most clarifying things that you or I will ever know. When we stop seeing ourselves as entitled in any way, our grid for interpreting the things that happen to us in our lives goes through an astonishing transformation, a sea change. We stop holding God to promises that he never made, and we start valuing the promises that he has made as the unfathomable unfathomable treasure of pure grace that they actually are. The salvation that God absolutely guarantees to all who trust in Jesus has made the end of the curse our everlasting destiny. He has already redeemed us from the penalty and power of our sin, and he will very soon deliver us from the very presence of our sin and of the curse that is the perfectly just consequence of our sin. That is guaranteed because of what Jesus did for us and not at all because of anything that we will ever do. When my dear mother-in-law, Virginia, was in the throes of Parkinson's disease, complicated by a very unpleasant condition that kept her face pointed straight at her feet for what seemed like interminable months, I had the tremendous blessing of driving her to and from physical therapy downtown many times. Instead of me encouraging her during those trips, as I intended, she kept encouraging me. That was a valiant daughter of God just like her daughter and her daughter's sister. One passage that mommy loved to cite from God's word was 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 17. Absolutely one of of the ones that God brings to my mind over and over. Therefore, we do not lose heart. For though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light Affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are temporary. 
They are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God is continually at work to teach all of his children to stop focusing on tangible, visible, temporary solutions to the tribulations of this earthly life and to focus instead on the magnificent, not yet tangible, not yet visible, eternal solution in the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Listen, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is the one legitimate object of our hope? It is the grace that will be lavished on us when Jesus comes back to claim his bride. That's the one legitimate object of our hope. That's as clear as clear gets. That hope, beloved, is the anchor of our souls. Not the hope of the absence of pain in this life or the end of pain in this life temporarily. Not the hope of greater predictability or comfort or control. Not the hope of trouble-free relationships or problem-free kids. Only the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The guarantee of that hope is God's ever-present yes to us as his children. Every good thing that we will ever ask of him will find its perfect realization when that promise is fulfilled. There will be no more death, no more crying or mourning or pain. All will be made new. And we who trust in Jesus will dwell in the presence of God and his kingdom in which righteousness dwells together with his people forever. Beloved, every time God says no to a request that his word calls good, his no to his children is actually not no. It's not yet. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For as many as may be the promises of God in him, in Christ, they are yes. Wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. <laughs> Spend some time in that verse. The promises that God has made to us that are bound up in our union with Christ are all yes. All the time. Without fail. If that's where your hope is, you will never be disappointed. We are so prone to hold God to promises he never said he would fulfill here and now and to forget the, the magnificent promise that he has very clearly made to us as his beloved children, that neither tribulation nor distress nor persecution nor famine nor nakedness nor peril nor sword nor death nor life nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No created thing can separate us from that. His promise to his children is eternal and it is untouched by anything that isn't eternal.
If you're here today and you're still trusting in yourself to make it well with your soul or to make yourself good enough for God, may today be the day that you abandon all trust in anything and anyone other than Jesus. He died on that cross to pay the eternal sin debt of rebels against God like you and me. He was raised from the dead. And now he sits at the right hand of God until he comes back to claim all whom he has redeemed. Trust in him alone with childlike faith and all of your sins, past, present, and future, will be canceled out, nailed to his cross, and he will cover you with his own righteousness, perfect righteousness entirely as an undeserved gift that you could never earn. He alone will qualify you to dwell with God in his kingdom together with all of his saints forever. That is the only worthy object of our hope. Father, thank you for your precious and magnificent promises to us in Christ and in him alone. Thank you, Father, that you know us and that you never, never cease to be at work in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Thank you, Father, that when our flesh and our hearts fail, you remain the strength of our hearts and our inheritance forevermore. We give all the glory to Jesus. None of it belongs to us. We trust in you, not in us. And we rest and are at peace and have cause for joy indescribable and full of glory because of what Jesus did for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.